everybody, welcome to 2ZQ Hot Takes, where we discuss issues both big and small. I am your host, the very handsome Tim Kirk, and this time, I'll be talking about the track. A little history. The New York Racing Association, Inc., NYRA, is the not-for-profit corporation that operates the three largest thoroughbred horse racing tracks in the state of New York. Aqueduct Racetrack in South Ozone Park, Queens, Belmont Park in Elmont, and Saratoga Racecourse in Saratoga Springs. Racing at NYRA tracks is year-round, operating at Belmont Park from May to mid-July and from September through October, at Saratoga Racecourse from mid-July through Labor Day, and at Aqueduct and its winter track from November through April. The New York Racing Association is the successor to the Greater New York Association, a nonprofit racing association created in 1955. NYRA is separate from the governing body that oversees racing in New York, the former New York State Racing and Wagering Board, now the New York State Gaming Commission. In 1913, racing returned to New York after a hiatus due to the Hart Agnew Law. Only four tracks had survived the hiatus. These were Aqueduct Racetrack, the Big A, Belmont Park, Jamaica Racetrack, and Saratoga Racecourse. The tracks came under common ownership with the creation of a nonprofit association known as the Greater New York Association in 1955. The association remodeled Aqueduct Racetrack, Belmont Park, and Saratoga Racecourse and demolished Jamaica, which is now the Rochdale Village Housing Development. The partnership became the New York Racing Association on April 10, 1958. Later, Belmont Park was closed from 1963 to 1968 in order to construct the new grandstand. And I would swear, they never remodeled them. That's just my observation. Off-track betting in New York was established in 1970, being offered by regional, government-owned corporations, OTB parlors began showing live video feeds of races, referred to as simulcasting, in 1984. In 1995, the NYRA launched a cable television channel and a telephone advanced deposit wagering service. And a telephone advanced deposit wagering service. From December 2003 through September 2005, NYRA operated under a deferred prosecution agreement following a 2003 federal indictment. The charges related alleged income tax evasion and money laundering by mutual clerks between 1980 and 1999 with the knowledge of NYRA middle managers. Under the agreement, NYRA paid $3 million to the government and its implementation of new cash handling procedures designed to eliminate corruption and mismanagement was monitored by a New York law firm. After receiving a report from the monitor, which concluded that NYRA was in compliance with the new guidelines, the Justice Department moved to dismiss the indictment and its motion was allowed by a federal judge. NYRA, claiming that the state lottery division's failure to approve the installation of video lottery terminal VLT machines at Aqueduct Racetrack pushed it to insolvency, filed for Chapter 11 Bankruptcy Protection on November 2nd, 2006. Hey, that's the day I started at NBC. The association emerged from bankruptcy protection 
September 12, 2008, with incorporation of a successor corporation, the New York Racing Association, Inc., and New York City's OTB Corporation shut down in 2010. In 2016, NYRA launched an online advanced deposit wagering platform under the brand NYRA Bets, which offers live bets and live simulcasts and is available on multiple states. NYRA was reorganized and its franchise to operate the three racetracks was extended through 2033 under legislation approved by the New York State Legislature on February 13, 2008. The new authorization provided $105 million in direct state aid and forgave millions more in state loans to NYRA. The association also gave up its claim to ownership of the land on which the three racetracks are situated. In return, the state gained expanded oversight responsibility. The state controller won the power to audit NYRA's books. The conversion of NYRA from a nonprofit association to a not for profit corporation also gave the state attorney general enhanced oversight authority. In addition, the state now appoints 11 of the corporation's 25 directors. By changing from nonprofit to not-for-profit status, NYRA also gained flexibility in its financial management. How about that? On December 20, 2017, a development team led by the National Hockey League's New York Islanders said that it will invest $1 billion in private funds to transform Belmont Park into a state-of-the-art sports and entertainment destination including construction of an 18,000-seat arena that will bring the hockey club back to Long Island. The Islanders moved to Brooklyn's Barclays Center in 2015 after playing more than 40 years at the Nassau Coliseum in Uniondale. The team plans to break ground on the year-round arena in the spring of 2018 and open the building in 2020. And the citation was needed for that because that's an old post. New York Arena Partners... The Islanders' partners in the development, which includes Sterling Project Development, a real estate firm run by the New York Mets' Wilpont family, also old, and Oakview Group, an arena development company funded in part by Madison Square Garden, will finance the project. The group will sign a 49-year lease with the state and pay a total of $40 million in rent. Sounds like a bargain to me. The arena is expected to host up to 150 events per year, including concerts. The plan calls for 435,000 square feet of space of retail stores, restaurants, and a movie theater, a hotel with up to 250 rooms, and nearly six acres of outdoor recreation space. Well, I kind of think that Belmont Park has at least six acres of outdoor recreation space already, having been there a few times myself. Concurrent with the project, Belmont Park's Long Island Railroad Station would become a full-service station with the area enhanced by landscaping, public art, and a bike path connecting the property to the residential community. And I know the residential community is just thrilled about this because the people who live on the north side of the track had a very quiet, pretty neighborhood, which I think is going to be steamrolled and ruin the privacy and the niceness of the neighborhood. But that's just my personal observation. Also, NYRA plans to upgrade the track, clubhouse, and heating systems. 
NYRA maintains its own law enforcement force comprising over 150 law enforcement officers. The force consists of uniformed officers and supervisors, fire marshals, and plainclothes investigators and inspectors, all of whom maintain New York State peace officer status, thus giving them arrest and investigatory powers, the authority to issue summonses, and the ability to carry defensive weapons including a firearm, baton, pepper spray, and handcuffs. Uniform members wear navy blue-style uniforms. Basic training is conducted yearly. NYRA also employs New York State-registered security guards at Saratoga Racecourse during its racing meet, as well subcontracts private security guard companies to assist with large details downstate, such as Belmont Stakes. Now, I've been to uh, Belmont, Aqueduct, and Roosevelt. And Roosevelt was a completely different animal from thoroughbred racing. Those are the trotters. Uh, the people who go to the track are a different animal. And as I'm about to say, if you've ever been to the track, you used to wonder where all these odd people came from. I always like to think that they were either Damon Runyon-esque types, or in my imagination, the vagrants who hung around and got odd jobs at carnivals. And one night the carnival packed up and left. And when the vagrants woke up, they were even more disoriented than they usually were and followed their instincts to the nearest racing track. I thought, well, you can't get much lower than this without being in jail. But then I realized this is the fabric of society. Oh, yes, and O2B. Off-track betting in New York. It was close in 2010. And I must say, still, the single worst decision any governing body could ever make was to eliminate almost all of the OTBs. Because everyone who knew these people at least knew where they were and you could find them. Very likely eating out of aluminum containers and wearing threadbare grubby clothing while shouting at the TV screens. You just cut them all loose and now they'll all get shot in back alleys after failing to pay off a bookie or argue with another gambler at a cockfight. And it was its own community. At least they learned some degree of social skills and there was a hierarchy they could comprehend and incorporate. Oh, why did you close OTB? It was like a way station for the underdamned. Now to the subjects of fleas, the flea markets, aqueduct on Sundays, and the caddies. I also caddied, which will be a part of another podcast. But I do have to mention that as a caddy, I worked with a wide variety of older men than I was, a teenage boy, many of whom were considered fallen or lost souls. Most of them were habit shoes of the track. When they could make enough money to take a bus and append a few dollars, they all somehow knew jockeys and had racing tips they could give to well-heeled golfers. And occasionally, they would get a big tip as a result of one of their good horse tips. Gin, buses, and racing forms. What a life. Guys with names like Kino and OB, Talkin' Richie and Georgie Boy. Not lady killers by any means, but basically good guys who were thralls to cheap thrills. I say thralls to cheap thrills more often than I should, but only because I have known so many people who were thralls to cheap thrills. I worked at the Aqueduct, Belmont, and Roosevelt Racetrack flea markets, which were all great because the same vendors would go to each on a circuit, and the parking lots were large enough to accommodate the vendors and the cars of all of the visitors to the flea. We called it the flea. 
Some say the flea markets are the lowest common denominator of culture and society, but I say it is the most level playing field for all members of society. Everybody is the same at the flea market. In my experience, the fancier you presented yourself, the less you were embraced by the community of vendors and fellow market goers. Many never bought anything, but loved to wander about looking at as if they were sightseeing. There were other regulars, like school teachers who bought supplies from us, like markers and pencils and erasers and stickers to put on tests and papers. It was the hoi polloi. I loved every second of it. We sold a lot of stationery, and in particular to house painters, we sold cases and cases of tape. And loads of goofy stuff and loads of batteries and the like. We had one kid every single week. He was a mouth breather. He wore a Judas Priest t-shirt. He had long black hair parted on the side. And he used to carry a boombox, which was virtually glued to his shoulder. And he had some sort of magical way to buy batteries, open the case, open the batteries put them all in the, the, the back of the boombox and close it in one sort of magical gesture. And he did that several times a day because he would play Judas Priest so loudly next to his head that he would wear the batteries down just by walking around the flea market. That was something else. I loved it. We used to sell stuff to other vendors both before the flea opened and after it closed because we sold stuff they needed to do business and close up, like different types of tape or markers and stuff like that. I would always see people who bought a huge household plant, which they believed was a good deal, and the huge jars of spices you can also see at street fairs for cheap. And the same rhythmic pitches used by vendors to attract buyers the guy on one side of us for five years sold bicycle parts, and the two sisters on the other side of us sold tablecloths and bird cages. We even sold Bic lighters by the case, and in particular to one guy who was also a vendor who sold stamps and curiosities with his niece who had a little crush on me, since in his full-time job he worked in corrections at the time and would sell the lighters to inmates and make a few dollars every week. I had a friend who worked there, I used to get a huge solo cup of sliced watermelon from him, and I would give him a $5 bill. It cost $1, and he would give me $5 as singles and change. <laughs> uh, the Aqueduct Flea Market apparently closed 10 years ago or so. I used to go to Aqueduct Racetrack on Sunday mornings with my oldest friend, and we saw the very same people who wore all the same exact clothing every single time we went there. The absolute worst, most bitter coffee I ever had in my life was available for purchase at the Aqueduct Racetrack. There was a VIP lounge, and every Sunday we would see the one and only Cab Calloway looking and acting exactly as he presented himself. He was a very pleasant, congenial fellow who enjoyed his stature, and everybody loved him. Many of the habitues wore, to be kind, outdated clothing and had peculiar grooming habits. There were touts and lowlifes who scrounged around the floors looking for $2 winners among the piles of discarded betting tickets. Men and women, mind you. It was almost like a portal to a parallel oddball dimension had opened up. I'm not saying it didn't either, because it sure felt that way. I must also say, I never felt threatened by any of those people. 
Many of them shouted out incorrectly applied aphorisms and sayings as the horses ran the track, which was a bit perplexing considering the amount of time they spent there. One would think they would learn how to use the phrases in context, but that was part of the charm. The track perpetually looked dilapidated. Belmont, Aqueduct, Roosevelt didn't make a difference. As if it was meant to look like that and it was about to fall down in the first place to discourage loitering. And the actual track itself was beautiful, as were the horses and the jockeys in their silks. Everything else, well, you had to be kind. Unlike the movies, races do not take a half an hour, and the winning jockey very rarely comes from way behind, or in many cinematic cases comes out of the blue to beat the evil jockey who was very obviously abusively cheating. And I have personally never witnessed an extended interlude right in the middle of the race where the lovers reconcile after a misunderstanding and then cheer on their unlikely hero jockey friend who was winning enough to save the orphanage and redeem everyone. I'm not saying it never happened. I just never witnessed it happen in front of me. And that doesn't even address the odor of the entire place. But it was something I would never exchange. I love my memories of the track. It gave me a deep insight into the basic core of human nature. And you can't say that about much else except the flea market. Now, the trotters were, to the majority of people familiar with them, the professional wrestling of horse racing. It was like betting on a Harlem Globetrotters game. And the people who went to these tracks were a little lower on the rung of society's ladder than the more respected thoroughbred horse racing tracks. I could just never figure out where all those people came from. Until I did. And then it all made sense. Thanks for listening. See you next time. And as the kitties say, peace out.